God, we ask now that you would quiet our hearts before you. Uh, we all, whether life is good or whether life is hard right now, God, we all have brought with us baggage this morning. Uh, cares, concerns, worries, fears. I pray, God, that you would allow us to um, do what you call us to do in your word, which is to take them off of our own backs and place them onto yours. I pray that you would turn our hearts to you. I pray, as I do every week, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what it is that you have for us. You say in your word, God, that those who worship dead idols become like them. They can't see and they can't hear, and we don't want that for ourselves, God. So we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear what you might teach us this morning. I pray, God, that the truth and the beauty of your gospel would be communicated clearly in this moment. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. Please be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. Good morning again. Good to be with you. Uh, apparently, uh, there's a football game today. Um, Junior leads worship. He, he serves at another church, and they have service this afternoon. And we were talking about that at the pre-service huddle. And uh, you know, some of us were like, wow, that's pretty bold to have church during the Super Bowl. And then I was thinking about it, and I got really convicted. Because like, how much more important is church than the Super Bowl? And so uh, I'm not going to get up on too high of a horse, but I'm going to get up on a, a medium-sized horse right now. Uh, this game that's happening this afternoon, it's awesome and exciting, and I'm going to watch it because uh, I love sports. But it is like, may we not miss, it is just uh, the culmination of like so much of what our culture and our world worships. The reason it is such a big deal is because we are made to worship something and for those who don't know the living God, they're looking for other stuff. And whether it's the money that this game generates or it's the adults playing a, a boy's game or whether it's the, the singers at halftime, all of which I'm excited to see, uh, the world is worshiping today. And this is like, this is their church service today. And so we, we don't have a church service. You know, enjoy the Super Bowl. I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade. But I just want to help us frame it like, how much, you get to go to the Super Bowl every Sunday morning. When, when, you, when you enter into God's presence, not because there's any great show up here on the stage, but because you sing worship to God and you hear a lesson from his word and that will exist forever and all this stuff that's gonna happen later today has no eternal impact. So just enjoy the game. Please don't be like, you know, at halftime, be like, Pastor Gary has really ruined this for me. I don't, that's not my intention. Enjoy it. But just recognize, let's put it in its place. Let's put it where it goes. And if we had something going on at the church today, I know you all would be here for it. So blessings on you. That wasn't even the sermon. So let's, let's go. Uh, we're in Mark. Mark chapter 9, we're in verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. We're continuing in our series, our deep dive through the gospel of Mark that we're calling Let's Go. I'll give you about four more seconds to get there if you're looking it up. Mark 9, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. 
And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, in November of 2016, a little two-year-old girl uh, named Ella Grace Foster, who lived with her parents uh, and siblings in central Pennsylvania, uh, became sick. For the first day or so, it seemed just like a common cold. Uh, she was lethargic, she was tired, she was complaining of a sore throat. Uh, but the symptoms got worse and worse and they began to become severe uh, to the point that she was having difficulty breathing. Uh, her parents, uh, Jonathan and Grace Ann Foster, uh, recognized that she was sick and, and quite sick and they called Jonathan's father, who was the pastor of their church, to come over and pray over her and anoint her with oil, excuse me, and, and that's what he did. Uh, she, had a, 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 she continued to, to deteriorate, and the next day, uh, tragically, uh, at two years old, she died in her father's arms. Uh, Jonathan and Grace Ann Foster were part of a church, which his father was the pastor of, which does not believe in modern medicine or doctors. And so although she was terribly ill, uh, Ella Grace was never taken to see a doctor. She died of pneumonia. And uh, both her parents and her grandfather were charged in her death. Uh, at the trial, a medical expert testified that had she been given a routine round of antibiotics, her chances of survival would have been 95% or greater. Uh, her parents were both uh, convicted of involuntary manslaughter and child endangerment, and they were both given five years of probation, which was a small price to pay relative to the pain and lifelong trauma they will feel at having lost their child. Now, Gary, why are you starting this sermon with such a crummy story? Why such a morbid start? Well, I want to ask you a question, and it's this. Why does that story raise so many emotions inside of us? I mean, I know all of us, after hearing a story like that, are feeling some kind of way. And there's a lot of reasons why, but why does it mess us up? Why, why does that story cause us to, to 
think some things and, and, and say some things and wh- why is it so disappointing and so frustrating to us? Uh, this is not a sermon about medicine. Uh, I, I mean, I'll stand here today and, and proudly, boldly, not proudly, boldly say that I believe that modern medicine and doctors are a gift of God to all of the world. They are a sign of his common grace for all of us. Why do we get messed up when we hear a story like that? I, I, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them I think is this. Parents are not supposed to hurt their children. Pa- parents, th- this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, parents are supposed to be the place that children go for safety and security and protection. When something like this happens, and uh, actually I, I saw it this week because I was researching it, on average 12 children a year die because their parents, on, on, for religious reasons, refuse to seek medical help. Uh, it's, like, it's like in the same category as uh, corrupt police officers or corrupt governments or unethical doctors right? These are all the places that we are supposed to be able to go for safety and security and protection. They're not supposed to be the places that we don't find those things or we get the opposite when we go there. There is something, there can be something, there can be something incredibly powerful in the love of a parent for a child. And this story that I just told you is not just a straightforward story of neglect. At the trial, This little girl's mother obviously was completely broken. She said, I've been a mother for 12 years and my children are everything to me. And I've been a father for 12 years. And I can also say, my children are everything to me. I would move heaven and earth and anything else in my power if my child was sick or hurting or in trouble to help them. If it ever were to come down to a choice between my health and my child's health, I choose my child. If it's between my safety and my child's safety, I choose my child. Well, I got four of them, my children. If it's, if it's between uh, my comfort and my security and their comfort and their security, I would do anything. If it's between my life and their life, I choose their life. Because there's something incredibly powerful about the love of a parent for their child. And parents are supposed to do everything in their power to love, guard, protect, and preserve their children. And that is exactly what we are going to see in the story that we are looking at today. We're going to see the story of a father who is doing everything in his power to love, help, protect. He's doing everything in his power to save his child. Now, as we enter back into this story, I just want to remind us, as I try and do every week, of the context. Last week, if you were with us, or if you just look back in your Bible real quickly while I'm blabbering on, you will see that last week, we saw the story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, his three disciples, up on the mountain where he was transfigured in front of them. And then they come down the mountain, and the story that I just read is what they encounter as they come down off of the mountain. So now listen, this is not part of my, the bigger picture sermon. This is just a freebie for today, looking at the context of what we're looking at, but here it is. Life is not done on the mountain. Life is lived in the valley. And as they come down into the valley, they are confronted by all the frustrations and difficulties of life in the valley. There's conflict, there's disagreement, 
There's, a, there's, there's, there's sickness, there's evil spirits, this, that, and the other thing. Life is not lived up on the mountain, it is lived down in the valley. God calls us to serve him down in the valley. And what we see as we are studying this book, this gospel of Mark, is that Jesus himself lived in the valley. He did his work in the valley, and he calls us to join with him. So the disciples in Jesus, the three disciples in Jesus, coming off the mountain of transfiguration and they're coming down into the valley and as they come down and they're meeting up with the other nine disciples who didn't get the privilege of going up on the mountain with Jesus for the transfiguration, they can tell as they approach that something's going on. You ever been in that situation? You know, you come out of a restaurant and off to the side in the parking lot, a crowd has gathered and maybe there's a police car over there and it's like something's going on. Or you went out for lunch and everything was fine at the office and you came back from lunch and just stepping in there, you're like, something happened while I was gone. Or you come home from work, you know, and your wife tells you, your son is waiting for you in the bedroom. Something, something is going on, right? So the disciples in Jesus, Peter, James, and John, come down off the mountain and they can tell that something is going on. And so they, they, they come up to the disciples. There's an argument going on. There's a great crowd and the crowd, it says in verse, uh, excuse me, the crowd, it says in verse 15, is greatly amazed when they say Jesus. And it's like they've been wanting to speak with the manager and he's not been around. And now the manager has arrived and they're like, this is the guy we needed to see. Thank you for showing up. And they enter into this commotion that's going on between the remaining nine disciples and the crowd that's there. And Jesus asked them in verse 16, what are you arguing about? And a father, a dad from the crowd, speaks up, and this is what he says, verse 17. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, Mark doesn't put a name on it. Matthew does. Matthew actually says that this child has epilepsy, but it's more than that. He's mute. And it's because he's possessed by an evil spirit. It doesn't say evil spirit, but that's implied in the text. This boy is possessed by an evil spirit. Not the first time we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus kind of gets exasperated. Here we go again. He says, bring him to me. And they bring the boy to him. When he sees Jesus, the spirit attacks the boy again. And then in verse 21, Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Now, we got to just be clear on one thing, and then we're going to get on with, with what this point is. The first is this. Uh, we we got to recognize not every form of epilepsy means that someone is possessed by an evil spirit. Not every, not every instance of uh, mental illness means that somebody is possessed by an evil spirit. But some forms of epilepsy, does it mean someone is possessed by an evil spirit? Yeah, it does. Some forms of mental illness, does it mean that someone's possessed by an evil spirit? It's the plain meaning. It's the plain teaching of God's word that, yes, it does. Not everyone is possessed by an evil spirit, but we are all feeling the effects of evil spirits. There is, there is another realm there's a spiritual realm. We've talked about this before in this church. And what happens in that realm affects what happens here. And so for some people, that is going to manifest itself in that I, I do believe that demon possession still happens. But for most of us, what that means is that we are going to get the downstream effects 
of the fact that there is an evil, malevolent force. There's an evil, malevolent being. His name is Satan. And he introduced sin into the world. And every form of darkness, death, illness, sickness, you name it, in some way, shape, or form can be traced back to its source, and that is him. So what I want us to see is that last phrase that the father says to Jesus in the middle of verse 22. I guess it's not the last thing he said. It's the last thing I just said. It is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Do you ever feel like something's out to get you? Do you ever feel like everything is just like stacked against you? I used to, uh, I used to play a decent amount of video games. I know this will be lost on some of us, but just you know, suspend your disbelief and try, and try and come along with us. Others of us, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and it doesn't have to be you know, uh, Madden. It can just be if you like playing uh, Scrabble on your phone or whatever it is. But you know that moment what was that, Mario Kart? <laughs> you know that moment when you're playing a video game where it becomes very obvious the computer is not going to let you win. No matter what you do, no matter how skilled you are at this game, no matter that you just played an 11-letter word on a triple-word score, the computer comes back and outscores you on the next one. I, can, you just, I played enough video games to know the feeling. Like, you know when some code in the video game has been enacted, and no matter what you do, you're gonna lose the game. Does life ever feel like that for you? Have you ever been through seasons of life where it's like you lost your job, and your mom was diagnosed with cancer, and your dog died, and your child blew out their knee all in the same week? It sounds like a country and western song. It's why we love country, well, it's why some of us love country and western songs, because it speaks to our lived experience. Do you ever feel like something's out to get you? You should. And I'm not trying to go like boogeyman, I'm not trying to, to dig up the last scary movie that you watched, but it is the plain teaching of scripture that there is a spiritual realm that there's an evil, malevolent being that Jesus calls Satan, that his name is Satan, the adversary. And he has minions, he has evil spirits, he has demons that serve him. And there's a battle going on in the spiritual realm. And what happens in that spiritual realm affects what happens here in our physical realm. There is something out to destroy us. Again, I'm not trying to freak you out, but, but we can't just pretend like this isn't going on. There is a battle going on and there is someone out there who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. Not from other people, not from people in other countries, from you and from me. We're in a battle and we gotta recognize it. The reason things feel really crummy sometime is sometimes is because there is something that is trying to destroy us and we gotta be aware of it. Now, here's the scary part. Second thing I want us to see in this passage. Something's trying to destroy us. We are powerless on our own. We are powerless on our own. And that, I think, is maybe the most obvious thing in this story that we are looking at today. So here's this boy. He has been possessed by an evil spirit from childhood. We don't know exactly what that means, but it certainly seems like from the time he was born. He has had no power in his whole life 
to relieve himself of that burden of the evil spirit, right? He's still here. He's still possessed by this evil spirit. Not only him, who else, can't, who else is powerless against it? The disciples, right? So the father brings the boy. He's looking for Jesus. He's up on the mountain. He finds his disciples. And what, is it, what are we told in verse 17? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit. That makes him mute, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down and becomes, throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now that's a little bit curious because if you remember earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark sent out the disciples and they preached the word and they cast out demons. And so Jesus, or so Mark tells us that they couldn't cast this one out, and there's a lot of questions about why that is. Jesus alludes to part of what problem the part of what the problem is in the last verse of our text, when he says this one can only be driven out by prayer. So maybe the very simplistic answer is they didn't pray before they tried to cast out this demon. That could be it. But look, I want you to see that the physical, uh, the physical picture that is painted is teaching us something spiritual. Who was not with them when they were trying to cast out this demon? Jesus. They were trying to do it apart from him. And so, so apart from him, we are powerless. So the child has been powerless to save himself. The disciples have been powerless to do anything for him. And not only that, but who else? His father. The one who I feel like the most burdened for in this story. He's had this son. We don't know how old he is. He could be five. He could be 10. He could be 15. But since he was born, this father has not been able to do what is needed to be done to deliver his son, to help his son, to save his son. There is a, there's a guy who lived uh, in the last century, in the 1900s. His name was Jerome Rodale, and he was a pretty successful entrepreneur. Uh, he was one of the first people to start using the term and like widely promote the term organic. Uh, he, was a, he was a fanatic about healthy eating, healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, and, and of his many uh, entrepreneurial um, th- tasks, th- entrepreneurial uh, endeavors that he undertook, one of the most successful was he started a magazine, I think it was in 1950, called Prevention Magazine. And that was like his life's work. It was dedicated to the prevention of disease, illness, and sickness by healthy eating and a healthy lifestyle. In 1971, uh, he was 72 years old, and he was invited to be a a guest on the Dick Cavett Show, which was a talk show uh, before a lot of our times. Sorry, I know, sorry, I caught myself mid-sentence. In that interview with Dick Cavett, it's amazing, he says, uh, at one point in the interview, he says, I am in such a good health, Dick, that yesterday I fell down a long flight of stairs, and I laughed the whole way down. It's like amazing. Good for you, man. Like it tickles when you fall down the stairs. Then he said, he said just a little bit later in the interview, he said to Dick Cavett, he said, I have decided I am going to live till I'm 100. So they finished the interview. Uh, the next guest comes out. Uh, Jerome Rodale moves over to the couch, you know, just like they do on the talk shows today. And halfway through that next interview, uh, he loses consciousness and he dies right there on the stage of a massive heart attack. Dick, I have decided I'm going to live to 100. And he had about 30 minutes left in his life because he was powerless to stop sin and death from taking its toll. Do not miss the picture of helplessness 
that Mark is painting for us in this passage that we are looking at today. Because just like the boy, just like the disciples, just like the father, just like Jerome Rodale, you and I have, we don't have the power to add one day to our life. Not one of us can sit here in this moment and say, lungs, breathe another breath. Not one of us can sit here in this moment and say, heart, pump once again. And this is a word for the Bay Area. It's a word for America, but especially the Bay Area. Uh, Money has a way of convincing us that we have power. And it is a mirage. We cannot buy one more day. All of our technology, all of our education, all of our innovation, it, 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 is, it is nothing in the face of sin, destruction, and death. There is something out to destroy us. And as much as we want to feel like we can fight against it ourselves, we can't. We're helpless on our own. But you know, you know there's good news coming, right? It's the Bible. Last thing I want us to see is this. We are saved by a father's love. We are saved by a father's love. So um, almost without a doubt, my favorite character in this story, I say that like it's not real, it really happened. My favorite person in this story, maybe my favorite person in all of Mark's gospel is this father that Mark introduces us to in chapter nine, verses 14 through 29. I just, just do your best with me to enter into his situation. He's got this boy, he's got this child who I'm just gonna assume like me and like so many else, in, so, so many others of us, he, he probably loves this child more than, his, more than he could possibly show. And this child has been suffering since he was born. Something has been dramatically wrong with this boy. Again, we don't know if he's five, 10, or 15, but can you not imagine what this father's life has been like up to this point? I would just imagine he has tried everything. You know, I, I really hurt my back a couple months ago. And I, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciated how many of you said, you gotta see my guy, you gotta see this person, uh, you gotta try this. And virtually I tried almost all of it, so just know that. But do you not think the same thing was happening in this father's life? Do you not think every neighbor was like, you gotta try this, you gotta go see this person, go to the religious leaders, go to the doctors, oh, I got a guy over here who might be able to help. Do you not think that it has been years of trying to figure out how, what can I do to help my son? And then finally, he hears about this guy, Jesus, and there's these rumors floating around that he's doing these miraculous healings, and I just imagine the conversation with his wife, like, that's a, he's a long way away, and it's just going to be more disappointment, and she's like, you got to go, you got to try, and he's like, it's not going to work, nothing has worked up to this point, and she's like, you got to go, you got to try, and so he goes, and he brings his son, and he gets there, and what does he find? Jesus isn't even there. And he meets with the disciples and he's like, of course this is the way it goes. The guy I'm looking for is nowhere to be found. But the disciples are like, hey, 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 no, no. We, we should be able to take care of this. This shouldn't be a problem. And he gets his hopes up a little bit and then it's like, after 20 minutes or 30 minutes or three hours or whatever it is of them praying, or they weren't praying because Jesus said that, or you know, whatever, they're casting out the demon and it's not working. And it's just like he's sinking lower and lower and it's like, here we go again. And then, like, maybe he's getting ready to go back home. Here's another failed attempt to help my son. And then here comes this guy, Jesus. 
And you can just, it's sometimes hard, I think, to catch emotion in the, in the biblical text. And so I don't want to read in more than, than is here. But I love it in verse 22. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, like if, if, if you got any, anything in you at all, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. He's just this broken dad who's, who can't help his son and is desperate. And he's not really sure that Jesus can do anything, but he's like, I might as well at least try. And then in verse, and then Jesus says, if you can, some, uh, some English translations make that into a question. If you can, this, the ESV makes it into an exclamation. Like, if you can, like, of course I can. All things are possible for one who believes. And then the father gives us uh, some of my favorite words in all of scripture in verse 24 because he speaks for every single one of us. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Do you know what he's saying right there? He's saying, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, you are the Christ, but you're not gonna suffer. Do you see how this is all connected? How it all runs together? And we should just take incredible encouragement from this because it's like these people who are the closest to Jesus, they were like, I think I believe who you are, but, but I got all these other reasons to not believe and I just need you to help me. I need you to help me believe that you are who you say you are. And then what happens? Jesus says, and I know we're skipping back up a little bit, but I just, I think this is one of the most powerful phrases in the whole text. Jesus says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. And Jesus says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. You see, uh, what we need to recognize about this boy is he had incredible love from his father who was willing to go to no end to find help and salvation and deliverance for him. But that was not his only father. This boy had another father who loved him even more than his biological father could, if that's even possible, and it is. And while his biological father was powerless against the evil spirit that was tormenting his son, his spiritual father was powerful against the evil spirit that was tormenting his son. Bring him to me because I am the one who can do something about it. When I was growing up, uh, there was a show on TV just for a few years. I don't think I ever watched a single episode. I don't know if it was good or if it was bad. It doesn't matter for the purposes of what I'm saying this morning. It was a story, it was a show about a 12-year-old girl whose mother had died before the show started. And two of her mother's friends, who were single men, decided to together move in and raise this daughter together. It was called My Two Dads. And again, I don't care if that show was good or bad. I've never seen an episode in my life, but that is the story of each one of our lives. Every one of us has two dads. Listen, all of us in this room, I am, I, I'm not a doctor, but I'm, I'm, fairly, um, I'm fairly up to speed on how procreation works. Everyone in this room has a biological father. For some of us, our biological father has been great. For some of us, when we think about our biological father, we get good vibes. He is someone who cared for us, loved us, protected us, provided for us, and in many ways, we are who we are today because of our biological father. I, I am one. 
I, I, get, I get really good vibes when I think about my dad. Uh, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but loved for me and cared for me and provided for me. And, and part of who I am today is because of him. For others of us, that's not the case. For others of us, our biological father was not those things, was not loving, was not caring, didn't provide well. And, and in, in, in much the same way, we are who we are today because of that experience. And for others of us still, we don't even know our biological father. All of them, every single one of them, good, bad, somewhere in the middle or unknown, they are like the father in this story. Doesn't matter how much they loved us, they are powerless to do for us what we need done. But all of us have another father. All of us have a spiritual father. And regardless of what your experience has been like with your biological father, your spiritual father, God in heaven, is everything that you could ever hope, dream, or imagine for in a father. He is perfect and he loves you more than you could ever possibly know. You are made in his image. You are his precious child. And his longing is to protect, deliver, and save you. You know what makes him really angry? Someone thought I was going to say disobedience, and that's not it. You know what makes God really angry, your father really angry? That there is something out there that is trying to destroy you. Uh, one of my son's friends this week, uh, we're good friends with the family, uh, not my son, his friend, uh, at, at the playground at lunchtime or at recess or whatever. Uh, he got a kid out. They were playing four square or nine square or whatever it was. He got a kid out playing by the rules, and that kid just punched him in the nose. Bloody nose, black eyes. Like, something wells up inside of me. Something welled up inside of me when I heard that story. It's not my son. He's just a friend, friend's son. And, like, it makes me want to do things that are not pastoral, right? You... you <laughs> local pastor arrested at local elementary school. Like, we don't, it's not going to happen. But you understand the feeling, right? And that's not even my son. Imagine how much more so if it was my son. Now extrapolate that by like 10 million and think about how God feels about the fact that there's, there's this evil adversary named Satan who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy from his beloved children. And he is powerful to stop it. We are saved by the love of a father. Just like this father was trying to save his son by all means necessary, he took him to the only one who could do anything about it. We have a father who can do something about the one who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy us. Uh, as we are getting ready to land this plane, I did not say landing the plane, as we are getting ready to land this plane, there's just one more thing I want to draw out of this passage. What happens to the boy? after Jesus delivers him from the evil spirit. Second half of verse 26. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Those last two verbs, lifted him up and arose, those are resurrection words. Those are words that are used of Jesus. So after Jesus delivered this boy from the evil spirit, after he healed him, protected him, and delivered him, and everyone's looking at him, and they're like, he's dead. You know what Jesus was like? No, he's not. And he took him by the hand, 
and he lifted him up and he arose. It's a little bit, um, it's honestly, it's a little bit disconcerting how often I will be preparing a sermon and God will impress on me whatever that sermon is about in the week leading up to the sermon. Um, you know, like I keep waiting for this, the week that I preach on generosity to get a ton of money so I can learn what it's like to be generous. That, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but this week, here I am preparing to preach on this, this message about this father and this sick boy that he couldn't help. And some dear friends of ours tell us about uh, their godson, who's a little two-year-old boy, not even two, uh, whose body is growing, cancerous tumors are growing in his body. And the doctors told his parents this week uh, that there's nothing more that they can do. And it's just like, it's one thing when this is theoretical, right? It's one thing when we talk about um, a, a boy 2,000 years ago who was possessed by an evil spirit and it's not in a culture we recognize and we never were there and we can hold it at an arm's length and come up with kind of a great, like, God's love saves us. It's one thing when it's theoretical. It's different when it's real. It's different when it's someone real and, and it's someone you know or it's someone you love. And, and I'm like, like how, how do we walk through this in reality, not just in theory? And I'm like, what kind of jacked up world is this? What kind of, what kind of jacked up enemy is this that does this to two, not even two-year-old little boys? And, and as I'm just like wrestling with that this week and struggling with like, what is, how, how do you work through that? I just keep coming back to this passage that I'm about to preach. And, and, and I think in that moment, I think what Jesus is saying to that, that little boy's parents is the same thing he said to this father in the text. I think right now he's saying, bring him to me. I think he's saying, bring him to me because I am the only one who can do for your son what needs to be done. Uh, that little boy, someday, whether it's, in a, whether it's soon or whether it is when he is 90, someday those of us who are here around him are gonna look at him and say, he is dead. And you know what Jesus is going to say? No, he's not. And he's going to take him by the hand and he's going to lift him up and he's going to arise. And that is the only hope I know. It is the hope of the gospel. This message, this passage that we just looked at, Mark 9, 14 through 29, yeah, it's a story about an exorcism of an evil spirit. But you know what it really is at the heart? It's the gospel. This is the good news of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ because we are dead in our sin and transgression and there is nothing we can do about it but our hope is in the fact that there is a father who loves us and he will move heaven and earth to deliver us from sin, Satan, and death. So if you are, if you are struggling today, if you are suffering today, if you are in need of something today, you know what Jesus, I think, is saying to you? Bring him to me. Bring her to me. Because I am the only one who can do anything about it. 2,000 years ago, a, a great crowd standing on a hillside outside of Jerusalem watched a homeless Jewish carpenter be crucified and killed. And as he breathed his last breath, they said to each other, he's dead. And God said, no, he isn't. And he took him by the hand three days later and he lifted it up 
lifted him up and he arose. And because Jesus Christ defeated sin and death, the hope for every single one of us who bows our knee to him as Lord and Savior of our lives, who says, I know there is something out to get me and I cannot protect myself from it. I need you to do it for me. The promise is that we will join him in resurrection. So listen to me. One day the world is going to look at you and me and they are going to say he's dead. She's dead. But like the famous preacher D.L. Moody said, one day you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it for a second? Because for those who are in Christ, when it looks to the world like we are dead, God will take us by the hand, he will lift us up, and we will arise to spend eternity in paradise with him. Not because of anything we have done. Not because of any power that is inherent within us. Not because of our wealth, our education, or anything else we did during this life. Simply because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? We are saved by a Father's love. Let's pray. God, sometimes uh, as we work through your word, uh, you have lessons to teach us and theology to teach us and doctrine to teach us. And sometimes, God, as we come to your word, you just, need, you just remind us of, of the big picture story that we are lost without you and you are our only hope. God, I know many of us here in the sanctuary, many of us watching online have, 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 have taken that step of faith to say, I believe, help my unbelief. God, for anyone who might be here now or who might be watching online and they do not know what it means to call you Lord and Savior, I pray, God, that you would move in their hearts even right now. You are our hope. Our hope is not found in medicine or doctors or money or education or technology or, or any of those things. Our hope is found in the fact that there is a God in Israel. He is the living God and he holds the world in his hands. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you call us your sons and daughters. Thank you that you have adopted us into your family and thank you that in you we find deliverance from Satan, sin, and death forever. May we run to you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you can stand. We're now gonna sing uh, our last worship song, a song of response. This is a time to continue, worship, continue worshiping God. This is a time to talk to God. If you feel his Holy Spirit speaking to you in any way, if you feel like there's anything you need to talk to God about, this is the time to do it. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no better day than today to make that decision. I would love to talk to you after church about that if this is you. If you need prayer for anything, please let us know. You can email us at prayer at alcf.net. Let's continue worshiping and then I'll be back up uh, for the benediction. You unravel me with the melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my.
benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you are prayed for and you are sent. Amen.